My name is Toby Shapshak. I'm a journalist in Johannesburg where I publish a magazine called Stuff and a news service called Scroller.Africa. But I'm just here to introduce you to two of the smartest people and deepest thinkers in South Africa today. Dr. Ivor Chipkin is one of the country's best-known scientists. He is the founder of the Public Affairs Research Institute, PARI, at Wits University, and today he runs South Africa's first global think tank on government, GAP. He was the key author of Betrayal of the Promise Report on State Capture, a seminal work into the corruption and the anti-constitutional rule of the Jacob Zuma administration. He has a PhD from École Normale Supérieure in France, was an Oppenheimer Fellow at Oxford and is author of two books. Suffice to say, he's one of the leading scholars on government and thinking about government and thinking about government policy. Ivan and I have been talking for years about the kinds of things we want to hear on radio. It's been that long and it's evolved into podcasts like this. So this is the culmination and the beginning of some discussions we think are crucial in South Africa today. Justice Malala is, is arguably South Africa's foremost political commentator. He's edited newspapers, written books and TV scripts, and has been a fearsome and fearless commentator on South African politics for decades. He was the first person to call Tom and Becky evil, and justly so, and has been calling a spade a spade for decades. He lives in LA now with his brilliant wife and two teenage daughters, but he spent the first three months of lockdown in Cape Town. So welcome to Filling the Gap, a podcast about important topics about government without the usual and simplistic ways of just looking at corruption and competence. This is a podcast that is going to go deeper into the root causes of some of the things we see in society today. How's it, Toby? Very nice to be on the show. It's very nice to be launching a new a new show, uh, thinking around government and and, uh, and public policy. And Toby, if you don't mind, if I might add... Uh, Thinking about government and public policy, uh, thinking about the stuff of government and public policy, but from a different from a different perspective. Um, Toby, thanks so much for having me on. Um, uh, it's lovely to be on with Dr. Chipkin. I, I must confess, I'm feeling a bit intimidated, if you will, because I think what Ivar and his colleagues did on the state capture stuff. That work will resonate for so long in South Africa, and it was so necessary to have a, a scientific, if you will, um, underpinning to all the stuff that, uh, that people like me and you, uh, uh, Toby, write about. You know, we say, oh, there's corruption here, or there isn't corruption there, and so forth. But to actually have a reckoning of what it is and to put it into in that in that report was absolutely pivotal for for us presently and for the future of South Africa. It's uh, it's great to be here, and uh, and congratulations on your new show. Uh, Justice, hi. I think what I'm looking forward to is a conversation which doesn't just repeat or regurgitate the normal the normal cliches about South African government, which is all around everyone's corrupt and everyone's incompetent and everyone is stupid. But starts to to starts to probe uh, different dynamics, uh, the historical, the comparative elements of government in South Africa, and try to get behind what's really going on uh, in, in in South African context. And I think I'm very uh, very pleased to be part of this conversation with with Justice Malala. So Justice, uh, lovely to lovely to to have you on the show with me. Um, Yes, I think what's been quite fascinating about the current response is is the moral is the is the kind of moral the moral trope the the sense of moralism that's informed so much of of, of South Africa's response. Uh, think of the ban on alcohol, the ban on cigarettes, which have attracted so much attention. I heard Yusuf Abranji the other day uh, admitting that he wasn't a smoker, but being completely outraged by what seems to be a, an arbitrary an arbitrary ban. Um, and I do think that there's something there, not just about NK, about uh, Lamini Zuma or about this particular administration. I do think we have to take seriously that so much of government's policy, so much of government's thinking and its approaches are actually informed by quite conservative uh, moral conceptions about how South Africans should behave. 
I'm thinking back to 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 the Thabo Mbeki period, and I know there was lots of uh, reflection on on what informed his denialism. And one of the arguments which I think was made at the time by Deborah Posel, at the time she was my boss at the Witz Institute for Social Economic Research, was the idea that actually Thabo Mbeki's politics was informed by a politics of shame, that actually he was embarrassed by the sexual behavior of, of, of South Africans. And that this had informed that this couldn't be true, partly because it seemed to inform or, or resonate with so many racist colonial stereotypes about African sexuality. So I do think that there is a strong moralism about sexuality, around smoking, around drinking, which informs the political elite, that they almost seem to be a little bit embarrassed about how we South Africans really are in real life, that actually we're, we're not particularly moral, we're prone to, 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 to quite frankly, uh, all sorts of uh, shocking and, and, uh, and outrageous behavior. Uh, and I think that this is COVID is bringing out that kind of moral moral attitude in, in, in the government response. Would you call it a kind of moral rectitude? I mean, I, I, I've truly tried to understand what it is that informs this decision around the cigarettes. You know, the Financial Mail, who I have to disclose, I write for, uh, Catherine Child did a really great exposition of, of the scientific arguments that... Uh, have under, underpinned Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma's response to the court action and shown that they are all out of date, out of touch. Uh, the statistics don't add up. It's very hard to understand the rationality of, of all of these reactions when this one is just so irrational and so self-defeating. I mean, it's 400 million rand a month worth of, of taxes that uh, SARS can't collect as a result. Maybe you have some thoughts, Justice. I I think for myself, I I you know I think one of the the, the great books of South Africa is actually uh, taking on Dr. Chipkin's point is is Magavisa's book on Tabombeki. and in that book you look at it gives you a bit of a, a microcosm of where South Africa and the ANC comes from, and it's uh, if you will, it's black elite comes from. Um, you know, if you look at Tabombeki's mother, his father, uh, the generation before, many of those guys were from uh, missionary schools in the Eastern Cape. Um, you look at the rise of the ANC, eventually formed by uh, priests or uh, students of missionaries, largely from the Eastern Cape, from elsewhere in the country, Limpopo, uh, played a particular role. Um, and you look at their trajectory, and there is something very conservative about, about that, the formation of that organization, about how it evolved through the years of uh, petitioning the the state and and the and the Brits, uh, having its leader Pixley Sakasima go to London to say you know the 1913 Land Act, the 1933 Land Acts, and so forth were unjust, were were racist, were uh, all sorts of things. Um, and I think if you look at the tobacco ban that we're going through now, I think there is, you see bits of that um, coming through. I think that, that there is a, a sort of Christian, uh, and particularly Christian, underpinnings to this is wrong and, and this is our chance to perhaps fix the problem once and for all. Um, I, I continue to be uh, bamboozled uh, by, by whether people like Dr. Chipkin can find uh, a direct line from the science to the actual regulation that has stopped this, um, um, that has underpinned this ban. I'm not sure that even the court case we've just gone through, I think, I think um, uh, the, the uh, Judge President Dunstan Mlambo said, uh, and I stand corrected, but I think he said the issue was, is there a connection between smoking and, um, 
between smoking and health and 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 that there might be some impact on the pandemic we're going through yes um is the ban is the ban the right way to go about it um that wasn't something that the court i think con- uh, concerned itself with so to be honest and i i know that we 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 want to go deep into these things but uh, to be honest with you from where i sit i'm i'm I don't see why South Africa is the only country in the world, and maybe we are pioneers in the, at, at all sorts of things, but I still don't see how we are doing any better and will do any better in fund, fighting the pandemic um, because of the cigarette of the cigarette ban. It it it's it, it for me, you know, if you're going to make policy, if you want to stop South Africans from from smoking. By all means, do what Dr. Nkwasazana Jaminizuma did in the late 90s and early 2000s, and that is to introduce legislation uh, backed by the science, uh, uh, write a white paper, green paper, take it to parliament, get the concerned minister to sign it, get the president to uh, sign it, and it becomes law. And and by by that, you get society to move along with you, just as we moved along with her. On, you know, you and I, Toby, grew up in the 80s and 90s. Um, we grew up on Marlboro cigarettes and Peter Stevenson. Real men smoked real cigarettes. And exactly. And the Marlboro, you know, the guy in the Marlboro Man advert with a big mustache died of lung cancer. And so the idea of sitting in a restaurant, having a glass of wine and no cigarettes was of to me. And I don't smoke. I've never, I have never inhaled once. But the idea of not having cigarettes in a jazz bar, uh, of keepies in, in Johannesburg not having smoke in it, was, was totally shocking to me. And yet now, 20 years, 21 years later, here I am, I don't even think twice, you know, and I'm a healthier person. So I think there's, there's ways to achieve these goals without, without what we've seen happening uh, during this pandemic. I'm sorry, I've been, I, I, I went around and around that, but, but basically, I don't think this is the time to try to achieve whether it's your Christian moral uh, impulses, um, using this pandemic to get there seems to me uh, totally misguided. Uh, uh, to you and to me and to seemingly the rest of the country, except for a few cabinet ministers who seem, I mean, uh, you know, a, a pandemic is not the time to try and speak rationally to addicts. Addicts are not going to stop um, smoking cigarettes in a time of crisis. They're going to smoke more. And I, I've been speaking to smokers. They tell me a, a, back, uh, a box of camels, uh, Justice, the other great 80s um, icon, cost uh, 500 rand, they went up to 1300. Someone told me last Saturday they were paying 1600 rand for 10 boxes of cigarettes. Now, that just in, entrenches the, you know, the illegal operations, uh, the criminal syndicates, and denudes the, the country of 400 million rand. I'm, I could be wrong that, that uh, Edward Kiersvetter said we were getting from, from um, monthly sales. But I suppose it's, it, it, it just shows you, I mean, if ever there was a demonstration of a failure of leadership, the fact of the matter is here we are as a whole country, two months, three months later, trying to understand what the achievement of the cigarette ban has been. And in fact, it's been a total distraction from all the other important issues. And, you know, like if there's a rational, rational reason for this, please show it to us. Now, of course, it's been delayed till August and, and here we are. I mean, personally, I think if this podcast could answer why it is we, you know, we've we've done this, and why you know why the government has banned cigarettes, that alone would be a triumph for me. But it but it just isn't. It's it's it just smacks of something strange, which is why Ivo's you know uh, analysis of the history of this organisation and where they come from seems to have been what happens. I mean, I, I remember Tarbon Becky's very strange 
irrationality about other people's perceptions of, of African and how colonial they so were. So, Toby, if I may come in here, I'm not sure I agree with you. So, I mean, I think, and I think you, you framed it in a very nice way, but I think we, there's another conclusion to reach. I think this, I think because Zama Zuma and ANC and the, and the current government think they are showing leadership. They are, I mean, there's, there is no doubt. I mean, I used to smoke, I used to live in Paris and I used to smoke what, what I used to think of as Lucky Strike, but were known in Paris as Lucky Strike. And I remember then moving to Oxford uh, and a pack of cigarettes costing, I think at the time it was five pounds a month, uh, which made my, my smoking habit, I think, 300 pounds a month when my salary was a thousand pounds a month. So, you know, I, I, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel terribly for, for, for those that are smoking. It was my great incentive to stop smoking. And I think this is what she thinks she's doing. She's thinking, uh, which is correct, that smoking is very, very bad for you. The effects of smoking on the South African health system are, are, are terrible. And here is an opportunity, which, COVID, which was created by COVID, to stamp out smoking, or at least to uh, discourage uh, tens of thousands or hundreds, maybe hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many smokers there are in South Africa, from, from smoking. And here's the perfect opportunity to, 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 to use the COVID as a ban. So I think she does. She thinks of herself as, as leading. And I think this is why the smoking story is not idiosyncratic. I think it, it tells a bigger story about the culture of South African politics at the moment. Here is someone who thinks that her role as a leader is to drive a large moral agenda, as much as a political agenda, a moral agenda. Smoking is bad for you. It's uh, morally bad potentially. It's also bad for the uh, bad for the bad for the uh, for the health system. It might be good for the fiscus, but it's bad for the health system. And therefore, it's her responsibility to use whatever opportunity she has to drive this agenda. So I think it's 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 that thinking which I think is very important, and it helps us. It's a it, it's. It puts us at some steps away from the kind of the normal analysis in South African politics, which is everything in terms of personalized, uh, personalized questions of stupidity or incompetence, or which is how things have been have been analyzed before. Justice, you mentioned the 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 state capture state capture story. It's very very similar. The way state capture tends to be analyzed in South Africa, which I fundamentally disagree. I really disagree is in terms of this is basically a story of corruption, that state capture equals corruption. I don't agree. I think what was happening here was that there was a political project being advanced. I know the, the argument is controversial. Uh, various people have become very angry with me around making that argument, but I think the evidence is overwhelming that, that those who were involved in state capture did not think of themselves as just doing it for the money. They thought of themselves as advancing a radical political agenda. And I think this is why it's important to, to, to raise these issues. And I think this is why the show, Toby, is a very new one in that it's asking us to think around uh, things which, which seem to be familiar, smoking, uh, non-smoking, COVID-19 has become familiar, state capture, but asking us to think about them in, in, in different kinds of ways. So I do think that there's a politics currently going on which we need which we need to understand better because it's definitely informing the way in which the South African government is approaching a whole range of a whole range of issues. Um, can I step in there, Toby? Um, uh, go for it, Doctor Chipke. Justice, can you call me Ivor? Um, yeah, sure, Ivor. Um, if you think about what went on in. Uh, the ANC conference in 2007 in Polokwane, uh, the next one after that in Mangaung uh, in 2012. There is a political frame to, to what happened and what state capture was all about. Um, it continues today, and part of the schisms you see in the ANC, part of the uh, battles that are unfolding now, uh, continue to unfold now, both in within the ANC and in government, um, are part of the battles between uh, what you will, a sort of more middle-of-the-road ANC and a, and a left, not left-pulling, but more, if you will, your, your, what you term the radical agenda. And, and that's what people refer to as the radical economic transformation and president, former President Zuma and others have, you know, come out very clearly as being proponents of this. But I think if you take something as 
<laughs> to someone who doesn't smoke like me as mundane as the cigarette ban to people who smoke something that dominates their thinking probably all day. Um, the cigarette ban for me asks us and us people in leadership to say, you don't always get what you want when you're a leader. You, you, it's always a payoff between competing uh, objectives, competing needs and wants. And what you have in South Africa right now, uh, in my view, is that the, the cigarette ban, uh, and, and you know, it pains me to always have to refer back to the cigarette ban, but the cigarette ban shows you, illustrates our inability to say, what is the bigger fight that we have on our hands? Is this what we want to, we want to be wasting money on, um, time on, um, airtime on? We've been going for 22 minutes and, and can you believe this show has started off on cigarettes? When we have when we have people going hungry in our country, when we have um, hospitals collapsing, uh, uh, when we have so many, so many needs and, and, and pressing issues that, that we need to deal with. So, you know, for various reasons, I think, I think that there may be a political agenda um, that underpins, and maybe there's, there's other uh, issues, the moral underpinnings of it, um, that drive the cigarette issue, but but one one can't help but say, where are the people who say we've had the debate, um, and it's there are on both sides, on on various sides, not just two sides. There are compelling reasons to have a cigarette ban. Should we be continuing with it, or should we be concerning ourselves with much bigger issues? And I think, I think we're beginning to not just on the cigarettes issue, on many other issues, to lose sight of the bigger goal here. And the bigger goal is for South Africa to come out, hopefully, on the other side. If there's another side uh, of this pandemic, and um, to come out not as devastated as so many people have predicted. And at the rate we're going, uh, losing however much it is, Toby, you quoted at the beginning of the show, uh, this, these are not, in my view, this is not what we, we, we're going to end up with. We're going to end up with, sure, maybe some people will stop smoking, but that is imprecise. It's not science. I don't know. Um, many of us don't know. Um, what are the, the consequences of uh, illicit uh, cigarette smuggling, if there is any. Uh, all of you are talking about, oh, you know, cigarettes that have doubled, tripled, quadrupled, and so forth. These are some of the uh, the issues that that come off um, a policy decision that that I don't think we've interrogated as leadership of the country enough and said the pros outweigh the cons. I think the cons show, uh, the cons so far are far weightier um, than the pros. But Justice, you've also just showed us that we in the show have fallen for the very trap, which is the, which is the trap which South African politics has fallen into. And that is that we, 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 we are dominated by the political questions and we're not dominated by, or we don't think about the technical or institutional questions. I mean, you're absolutely right. So if a handful of people stop smoking, yes, he, yippee, that's, that's fantastic. But what it's, as you say, we've spent 20 minutes talking about those issues when the real issues, of course, are what is this doing to South African, South African economy? What is this doing to the South African state? What is it doing to our politics? It's not a question of, and yet we've been distracted by, by the smoking issue, which I think is exactly what happens to South African politics. We get so dominated by, by issues of scandal, of, of topical issues of the day, that we don't focus on the big underlying issues, which are the issues of the state, the issues of the economy. And that is where we, the conversation really, really should be. So absolutely. And I think that's it's 
very interesting that we fall into our own trap. Indeed, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, but I, I don't want to repeat myself, but to my mind, this is a failure of leadership because our leaders are letting the, the, the debate center around this. And of course, this was Jacob Zuma. I used to call him President Jacob Zuma um, strategy, you know, distract people with something. And, and whilst that's happening, uh, I find it interesting to think about it as some kind of political statement to be corrupt. I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that, but I need to think about it. I just think it's the kind of base thieving motives. You know, one of the uh, one of the, the the key things we really want to discuss about all of this was was uh, government capacity. So so let's look at you know let's look at it. I mean, a, a part of what I realized the great mistake was during lockdown, those first very hectic five weeks of lockdown, was um, we foolishly believe that even though the ANC government hasn't been able to deliver on its promises for 26 years, would suddenly be able to deliver in the time of crisis when it can't deliver in any other ordinary time. And the reason our medical health care system is so broken is because they've broken it. They've underfunded it. Uh, resource stolen. Resources have been stolen all over the place. And the bottom line is we thought they would do something. But what were we thinking? Oh, so pessimistic. So, uh, Toby, uh, I think you and I are going to be uh, each other's foil here. Because I'm not sure, I'm not sure I agree with that view. I think um, so. If you look at the, I mean, I look. I have a, I have a arcane, uh, idiosyncratic view of things. But nonetheless, if you look institutionally um, at South Africa, so look at the end of the apartheid period. End of the apartheid period, South Africa is has been broken up into a whole range of uh, racially segregated uh, administrations. Uh, there's the there's the tricameral parliament, uh, blacks, whites, and Indians, and at local government level administrations for blacks. They're all the the the, the Bantustans. They're the the TBV. They're the four so-called nominally independent countries, and then there are another four self-governing uh, self-governing uh, Bantustans. So that's eight eight self eight self-governing areas effectively in, within the within the country. So we've there've been achievements of of, of integrating. The, the country into a single unified unified country unified state I mean, that's an astonishing achievement the 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 consequences and the impact the the legacy of that of that uh, integration are are are, are um, we we haven't fully dealt with and and uh, many of the legacies of the weaknesses of administrations like the eastern cape for example which is really struggling in the face of covid it's related to the integration of the trans guy and the cis guy and the, and, the, and the piece of the Cape administration into a single provincial government. So that integration wasn't handled very, very well. But again, it's those histories of, of integration that we need to come to terms with. What are the two top performing provinces in South Africa? It's Gauteng and the Western Cape. What do they have in common? Well, they don't. They didn't have former Bantustans within the, in, in the areas to integrate. So that's 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 that's. So those histories of integration are, are, are complex, and we need to think about them. But there were some incredible achievements within within in, in the 1990s and early 2000s. So by the end of the apartheid period, South Africa is financially a mess. Never mind the economic chaos. Never mind the political revolt that's happening. Institutionally, uh, South Africa is the southern government can't do very basic things. Like for example, it can no longer collect tax. Uh, it can no longer collect taxes from South Africa. The, the tax system is effectively broken. One of the achievements of the ANC government in the early 2000s is the establishment of a national treasury and other revenue services. So one of the huge achievements of the ANC in the early period is to build an a financial institutional financial system which is actually able to operate pretty effectively. It's the great tragedy of the last 10 years under, under, under Zuma that you've seen that institution if not completely destroyed, heavily, heavily damaged, SARS in particular, and I think a lot of damage has been done to the National Treasury. Other areas haven't fared so well, but the story of the democratic transition is not only a story of failure, but rather, and this is what I hope this program can begin to, 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 to interrogate or think, ask us to think seriously about, some things succeeded and some things didn't succeed, and we have to understand why is that the case? Is it simply that some people were, were more intelligent, less corrupt, higher integrity than others? I don't think so. I think they're very complex and very interesting and very exciting histories for us to un un unpack in the, in, in the course of the program. I, I look forward to debating that with you. I don't, I don't, I don't disagree that the, the, 
the early years of the ANC did some pretty cool stuff and that the challenges were there and they, and they certainly inherited a wasteland from the apartheid regime. But it's 26 years, you know, there are only so many years you can make the same old excuses to my mind. You know, you can't, you can't blame something that happened 20 years ago and still say you've done it. The ANC has been the party in power. They've had the power. They've been able to do all of the things they've been accused of not doing. And the reason they haven't done them because of, because of cadre deployment. So cadres are more responsive, responsible to the party than they are the, the state. And, and effectively, the civil service has become not an enabler, but a millstone. I mean, something like 30 percent. Uh, I forget the, the figures are between 28 cents and 35 cents. Uh, of every rand that South Africa has to spend, that Tito Mbaweni has to spend, goes to our civil service. And they are, you know, they are unions allied to the ANC and they haven't done anything to make our country better. I don't dispute the, the facts you mentioned. For me, however, I think there are two things. Uh, the first one is, yes, the ANC has done brilliantly in many, many ways. And I think, I think the points that Ava makes about the early 2000s Part of it is what Ivan and his colleagues interrogated on state capture, and that is the collapse of institutions. So you take institutions that, that had been captured um, under apartheid, that had been made to work for one sector, one section of the, of the society. Um, you turn them around, you make them work, begin to work for everyone else um, to greater and lesser levels, as he points out, with the Bantustan system and so forth. Um, that said, I think the, the very fast consolidation uh, and the quite efficient consolidation that happened between 94, where you took a, a Buputatswana administration and, and managed to integrate it into the South African, uh, uh, into the <laughs> South African administration, if you will. Um, something happened there, and I was right that, you know, Transkai, Siskai were weak and, and, and fell into horrific corruption, maladministration, and so forth. And that's why we see what's happening with the, with the hospitals. But progress was being made. I think it, it, we shouldn't shy away from the fact that institutions were being built, institutions were, were rising up that were, that were, had the potential to be very efficient and to help lift us out of the horrific circumstances we find ourselves under right now. The truth of the matter is that those institutions were systematically undermined by the political agenda that rose up from 2007 uh, and consolidated itself around 2010, 2011, and began to have, in fact, began to have a an ideological structure to it, the, the you know, RET, Radical Economic Transformation mantra that we started to see that began to sort of be the underpinnings of what was going on. So for me, I think we did brilliantly. And part of the reason why I think the, those first five weeks of lockdown were coherent, um, were, were not... Uh, uh, I'm, I don't believe this talk that those first five weeks were a total failure. Yes, they were hard. They were hard on South Africans. They caused some damage, I'm sure, economically. Um, but I think that there was leadership. But part of what happens in the toing and froing of politics um, and of governance is that, is that you know, things things loosen up and things go awry. And I think the story of those first five weeks is a bit of the story of South Africa, that we started well, but we unraveled. Um, I think what South Africa is going through now, particularly since the uh, change of leadership in the governing party, the ANC, in December 2017, is that 
we're testing whether the institutions that have been undermined and destroyed can really be rebuilt. And sadly, at the moment, it's if it's if there is light at the end of the tunnel, it's very dark in this tunnel. I think that we're seeing the 10 years of destruction, finally, we're having to fix it. And I don't know right now whether with the talents that, that have been attracted back into, into government with the, um, I think, the leadership, uh, and I, I, you know, without going too much into the individuals, specifically the President of the Republic now, Cyril Ramaphosa, whether we can rebuild those. Essentially, the question that for me confronts South Africa now is whether we went so far down down the track, the corruption track, the, the misgovernance track, that we can't come back. And I think I think that's part of the of the debate about what's happening in what's happening in the eastern cape that the hospitals don't work those hospitals uh and and toby you've also followed this story for the past 15 years have just been used as a piggy bank and so every tender that goes out is not is not fair it's not it's not about what's really going on there or what needs to be fixed at the hospital it's about or it needs to feed someone or other. And so, and so I think our battle is institutional. It's about these institutions and whether we can, we can reclaim them. And I'm not sure that we can. It's certainly right now, uh, it's bleak. And, and it's, it's good to have someone like Ivor who, you know, uh, sees some light at the end of the tunnel. But I think that that battle is, it's a hard one. And it's unfolding right now, you know, five and a, two and a half years after Cyril Ramaphosa and his, some of his team uh, got into ANC power and got into, uh, into government. I, I don't know if we're winning. Uh, we certainly, I think we're certainly at a precarious moment in that battle. Here's the question for both of you. How do we turn those institutions around? I'm sorry if I sound like the... The, the pessimist amongst us, but I, you know, I, I'm heartbroken that this is what we've come to. You know, that the, you know, this is this is where our great Nelson Mandela-led revolution has brought us to uh, our knees with corruption and the fact that no one in government seems to think anyone does anything wrong. You know, I watched Bongani Bongo on. Uh, being interviewed on ENCA the other night. This man is accused of corruption, not by anyone else, but by the advocates of parliament. And yet he is still earning a big fat salary, sitting at home on his Zoom calls. And the man is 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 clearly not suited to the role. And yet that's who we've got in charge of the health portfolio. How on earth are we going to survive with this? I, I'm, I'm sorry to be so pessimistic. Maybe the, the the rest of you could cheer me up. Just to respond to that, you see, for me, Bongani Bongo doesn't depress me that much. And 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 I know I'm I'm like you, you know, we bang on about oh, this person has been accused of this and so forth. The question for me is when I see the NPA finally charging um um the accused in the VBS. Um, VBS Mutual Bank uh, robbery, if you will, heist as uh, it's been called. I sit and I say, are they capable of bringing this, of prosecuting, uh, securing a guilty verdict, and we start seeing people going to prison for if they are guilty? Um, and and how strong can the NPA? Um, the investigative bodies, uh, the uh, the investigative bodies that have to do the actual work of of getting the evidence and processing it and giving it to the prosecutors, are those institutions working? If I if I begin to say, oh, Shamila Batohi and her colleagues have 
fixed that institution because I believe that that, cons- that institution was beginning to work in the early 2000s under Bulelani Nguka and other people, then if they are getting it back to that, then I don't mind Bongani Bongo being on television. By all means, go ahead because I know that the institution will deal with it. My problem right now is that I don't know. Two and a half, uh, a year and a half after uh, Shamila Batuhi, for example, was appointed as the, you know, great hope of this institution. Is it happening? Um, is it happening? And and how much time do we have to turn these things around? So, so, uh, you, you know, the individuals are important, yes, but the institutions for me remain. This is where the battle is, and I think I I, I wonder. I'll say this again: uh, the the jury is out on whether we're winning there. Yeah, I would I would completely agree with that. And I mean, I, for me, I mean, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. I think what what ma- what matters now is whether we can win certain key arguments. Uh, and I think it's as, it's as simple as that, actually. Yeah, um, absolutely. Are we winning certain key arguments? I'm not sure whether we are. What are the key arguments? And Toby, you asked about what it would take to rebuild institutions. Well, one of the key issues that we have to deal with and we have to resolve, and that is the relationship between political appointments and a professional administration. We've we made no progress in this in this area. So, for example, it seemed to me, uh, and I'm, I feel quite strongly about this, that the historical record now is unambiguous and it's overwhelming, that if you want uh, state administrations or government administrations to work relatively effectively, you need to depoliticize them. Or rather, you need to allow professional administration administrators, you need to give them the, the time and the space to get on with their jobs to come up with, uh, and of course you need to hold them to, hold them to account. But in other words, you need the autonomy of the administration in respect of the political class. Now that is precisely what we don't have. What we've had over the last 20 years, and especially in the last decade under Zuma, is the extreme politicization of our administration. So you have politicians effectively meddling in ways that are completely inappropriate with key operational decisions regard to related to service delivery or the allocation of resources. That's not the role of politicians. The role of politicians is to set the political agenda, it's to define uh, what the role of administration must, must, must do or set their targets, but it's not for them to get involved in the detail of, of, of execution. That really is for a professional class of people to get on with their jobs. It's what we call a public service. That's precisely what has been weakened over and over and over again in the post-apartheid environment. We had a we had a very rudimentary uh, public service during the apartheid period. There was always the, the you know we didn't we didn't appoint public service on the basis of merit. We appointed them on the basis of race and gender. Whites, or largely white Afrikaans men were strap the high echelons of the public service. We haven't really undone that culture of politicizing the appointment process of, of, of our public servants. So it seems to be seems to me that the first step uh, in, uh, in, 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 in rebuilding our, our administrations is to start with giving them some degree of institutional autonomy from political in- interference. Now there are some signs that this is happening. I think in the NPA there are some signs, although we'll see what happens when uh, the NPA is faced with the, pros- the prospect of charging Julius Malema, for example, which I think must surely soon be on the agenda if you, if, you, if you take seriously the work of Danny Maverick. And we'll see whether they do have that kind of uh, institutional independence to go forward in that regard. Um, there's some signs that at ESCOM they've, they've allowed an administration or leadership to emerge without the normal political the political links uh, uh, largely run by white Afrikaans men which surely do not have those that kind of uh, political pedigree or political links how long they can last in any jobs I think that's going to be a real a real uh, litmus test for for our ability to tolerate autonomy or tolerate uh, independence of administrations but it seems to me that that is the that's the fight and if we win that fight I think South Africa's got some some real future if we lose that fight well then I think times are very dark indeed. The problem with the fight is that it's not on, it's not being had in a in an overt manner. It's being it's 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 a very um, political fight. I think that there are people in government right now who who want your ethos either to to come through, who want an 
independent, independent-minded NPA or uh, who want DGs to be um, proper civil servants who, who whichever administration comes in will implement um, the policies of of the politics of the day of the of the governing party of the day. Um, but these are people who are capable who can who can deliver on the mandate of that uh, of that uh, governing party. Yet, at the same time, you you see um, just a week and a half ago, there was on, on the, you know, there was a, a, a letter that was being um, distributed via the governing party, the ANC, signed by the uh, Deputy Secretary General of, of the governing party, saying that, you know, we are concerned that the appointments being made without the deployment committee uh, having vetted and put forward their their views on the people that are appointed. Um, there are ministers who still believe that, oh, you know, I'm going to take over portfolio X, Y, Z, and I need to bring in my own people. So part of the of the challenge of governance is that um, Justice Malala is appointed minister of police, and I start saying, I want my own police commissioner, or I'm the health minister, I want my own DG. As if, this is a fundamental problem that the debate is, is underhand. So the appointment of the NPA head, for example, seems to all intents and purposes as, the step in, as a step in the right direction. Um, on the other hand, you say, what policy underpins the appointment of an independent, capable person to that, to that position? There is no policy. The policy of the of the governing party is that no, 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 no. We should be, we should be appointing someone who is politically uh, friendly to us. Really, this is not just a question of uh, lack of understanding on the part of ministers or or, or, or other employees, but pre- precisely because there's a certain understanding of politics that informs it. So, for example, if your understanding is that. You know the ANC must lead, and or the ruling party must must be in, in must be in charge. And then, and yet you give you give the task of execution to uh, public servants who you don't know. Uh, you don't have a, uh, you worry that you don't have real control over them. Isn't there this anxiety that you're not really in power if uh, so much of uh, your mandate or your policy is dependent on people who you who are beyond or outside of your control? And that question is made so much more acute by the fact that. You know, in our recent history, the people that were supposed to be executing ANC policies were all the apartheid-era functionaries. So your instincts were, you can't trust these guys. So you needed to, you needed really to 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 exercise direct control of administrations as a way of as a way of being as a way of being in power. So I think it's that understanding that it continues to inform our our, our, our politics. So every time we talk the language of professional administrations, professionalizing the public service. What was the NDP's term? A capable state. Every time we talk that language, everyone talks that language, everyone agrees with that language, but it actually means giving up some kind of power. It means giving up power over public servants. And precisely when our government doesn't really trust our public servants, let's face it. I've, I remember in the 1980s, um, I was fascinated. I, uh, I went to a school where we were lucky enough uh, in the form of we had a teacher who was absolutely enamored with science and mathematics and so forth. And she told us a story about a guy, his name, um, I think he's passed away, um, I stand corrected. His name was Gordon Sibia. Gordon Sibia was the only black nuclear physicist. He got a PhD from some German university, if I'm not wrong. Um, but Gordon Sibir couldn't work in South Africa in 1984, I think it was, um, because he was black. In the post-apartheid South Africa, Gordon Sibir did get appointed to some senior positions and so forth. But the point, the point I'm, I'm getting to is that there was a racial anxiety and there was a political anxiety 
in the rise of, in the changes that happened in 1994. So first of all, it was, well, the civil service as it was, all 1.2 million or so um, uh, people who got incorporated into the new system were, were from the from the apartheid system um, and then and then largely white as you said there is one of the things that i think we we lost in the debate around professionalizing the civil service was that there were black professionals who were held back by apartheid who could have been a dg um, of telecoms or of whatever uh, uh, of health and, and, and so forth, any department. So, so instead of saying we are deracializing the system, instead we seem to have politicized the system into, uh, you know, the, the perception that all black people are ANC. Well, you know, the ANC, our civil service is full of people actually from the former Bantustans who are black and may not necessarily be ANC. Um, I think I think that anxiety about power, this is something that, that our political leadership needs to deal with, that it, it actually doesn't mean that you're not in power or, or that, you know, the idea that, for example, ESCOM will not run well because black engineers are in charge is, is something that, that the head of ESCOM in the 1980s, I think his name was McRae, um, did away with because he sponsored young people like Marcella Coco, who became the head of ESCOM, were sponsored by. Uh, ESCOM to go to university and they came back and, you know, he ended up being the CEO for whatever you, you might say it's terrible or it's good and whatever. But there are engineers at ESCOM and there are people who've moved from engineering into the business side of things who can run it. But are they ANC? All along we've sort of kind of run the entity as a the, the boards at the very least and the boards then select people on the basis of political allegiance instead of these are the people who can give us a utility that works for all South Africans and we don't have the load reductions that we now seeing. Uh, uh, so, so, I mean, that anxiety I, I, I acknowledge among political players, but I think that it's, it's actually time that, that we address that anxiety and say, you know, some of the most senior people at the SANDF are former Mangope uh, um, uh, soldiers who who put down the 1998, 1988 uprising uh, by Malibana Mezing in Bupitazona. They were integrated into into the SANDF. And voila, you know, you have an SANDF that's got some MK, some former SADF, some former Bupita Tswana Defense Fund, some former Siska Transka types in there. Um, are they capable? Yeah, I think many of them do a decent job. Um, are they ANC? Well, when we start going that way, we begin to, I think that's the rocky, uncertain path that we face. Yes, I think this question of, of, of what, so there are two questions which, which arise in my mind is that, you know, what do we need to do to build institutions? I mean, the other area, of course, is, is the way in we which face. we, uh, in line with the kind of international fashions of the day, uh, we outsourced and we decentralized so many functions like procurement, for example. So I think the question is to identify what are the issues that we need to deal with, address in order to in order to start building a, a capable state or a functioning state, never mind. But it's also to start thinking around what are the points of leverage? What it's we can identify the issues, but how actually do we start producing change? What was interesting about 2017, uh, 2018, in response to state capture, which I found very, very exciting and which I felt uh, quite strongly part of was the emergence of a kind of a new kind of civil society. It wasn't the old UDF reanimating or re coming to life. It was a, 
it was quite a diverse civil society, including organizations which historically would probably have felt quite uncomfortable being in the same room together, never mind being part of the same campaign, but nonetheless finding enough common ground to share resources and to, and to, and to, share, and to share a platform. So what you saw in 2017 was quite an unusual, quite an uncomfortable civil society emerging, but one nonetheless committed to uh, some uh, notion of democracy, some uh, question of constitutional rule, uh, some, some question of, of, of social justice. That was very exciting to me. I worry that that civil society has become trapped in that discourse of corruption and that it's so single-minded in its focus on corruption and rooting out corruption that it's lost sight of the broader broader historical and institutional questions which are at stake. Dealing with corruption and dealing with corrupt people, yes, is necessary, but it's not going to solve all sorts of problems. So I, I constantly wonder in my mind, what, what is it going to take to start producing the conversations that are needed and the actions needed to start to start achieving the kind of change which we which we're talking about and which we which we think we need one of the things for me about this uh, this is why you know i'm i'm sad to see some of the divisions that have that have arisen out of the out of the um uh, this pandemic and the lockdown and level three or advanced level three wherever we are because i thought that addresses that the president made in March, uh, in April, um, where he, if you, if you look at the touch points in, in those first speeches around the lockdown, the so setting up of the Solidarity Fund, bringing in business people, some of the richest people in South Africa, then civil society voices being listened to an empathy in the speech that spoke to the people of South Africa and, and how the people of South Africa can unite and fight and fight the, the, the pandemic that, that, you know, was clearly coming at us. I think that all those touch points spoke to the unity that you saw <laughs> with the corruption that attended it, but the unity that you saw in time to mount a World Cup in nineteen in twenty ten, um, the unity that that rose up and came about with um, the building of a new South Africa, not just the nineteen ninety four election, but the 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 post nineteen ninety four conversations that were very exciting, very optimistic about where we might take our country. I think it's possible to rebuild. And I think it was, for me, very evident in March this year. For me, it was a very positive time, despite the personal hardships that so many people were going through. I felt that people were saying, we face a common enemy, if you will. Um, and, and it's not about corruption. People, you know, made a lot of noise about, oh, you'll see it will descend into this and so forth. And those voices, I, I personally, I welcome people chirping and, and so forth. But I do think that we still have it in our society to build that commonality, that, that common vision and drive and, and unity. I think that we let ourselves go, and I, 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 this is a leadership issue. I spoke to a 14-year-old yesterday, and, and for me, this is a kid living in a village in, in, in Pretoria who goes to school in town, and he was saying to me, oh, you know, I, I, tomorrow I have to go to school, and the taxi drivers are saying, no, it's... Um, as they say in the text, it's four, four, Masalisan, as in four people to a to uh, a row of seats um, and 15, 16 in a taxi. And he was saying, I feel like the president has given up. Um, he's no longer talking to us enough. He's no longer leading us. And so the taxi drivers and the taxi associations are, are doing whatever they feel they should do. And his biggest fear is that he's going to get um, the coronavirus. And so for me, if a 14-year-old 
if we can't say to that 14 year old, it's okay, we are united and are rebuilding this thing. I think we have a problem there either. And I think, you know, I'm not, I think we can build it, but I think that at pivotal moments when we need to push through, and this is that moment, I feel like the president and, and his team, and not just him alone, I think that uh, it's almost like they've put their hands on their on their heads and are saying, ah, it's too hard or it's too, um, it's not possible. But that moment was clearly visible to me, that moment of unity and purpose and, and, and resolve, I think, was clear to me in March. And I, I, I still said that we're having a conversation that is as skewed to the negative as we're having, because I think that we're capable of of building that that united front that you you spoke about in 2016 17 uh 18. maybe yeah maybe you and i are too are still too um enamored or trapped by the prospect of non-racialism which does seem to be a train that has that has that has moved on um uh maybe that's maybe that but I do, maybe our next show we should seriously think about one on 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 the question on the national question on nationalism or the question of national unity and the idea of unity what that means today. I think that would be a very very interesting topic to explore in a in a, in, in another show. I agree. Just to end, I mean, I I I agree that there's a sense of of a little bit like uh, deer in the in in, in in oncoming traffic. That um, I think that there's a degree of shock the degree to which the current administration has so little authority uh, to, to achieve things. I think there is goodwill in this administration. I think uh, uh, the president is probably a man of, of, of goodwill. I think he's a man of capability. But I think there's a degree of, of, of shock at how little power they're actually able to exercise, whether it comes to... Are you shocked? Uh, that the president I, I, is shocked? I think the president... No, shocked. Shocked. No, no. I think he's coming to a sense of that actually there's so little, maybe they have a, there's so little authority that they do have. They have very little control over the taxis, for example. They have very little control over provincial health administrations. Uh, we've had all this time to prepare, and yet it seems as if there's uh, uh, our preparations have been, uh, if not not for nothing, they have been certainly inadequate given uh, given what's given what the news what seems to be coming out of the, out of out of out of the Eastern Cape. So. Um, uh, I think these questions of institutions are the key questions which we need to address. And I think uh, South Africa's political culture, as we saw in the beginning of our show, tends to move away from those sorts of questions to, to the political, the smoking, the fashionable questions. And it's these hard questions of institutions and of administration, even I dare, that you, dare use that word, that are, that are the key questions which we, which we shy away from. I'm sorry to come in here. I've, I've stayed out of the way. No one wants to hear from this lowly publisher. But you guys have, have really captured a lot of the, the thoughts that I've heard being spoken about in the last few months. And, the, and the, the thing that's most important, I think, for understanding South African, South African politics and the ANC and where the ANC comes from is context. And to my mind, that's what a, we want to do with this podcast. That's where this podcast has come from. Let's understand the background. Let's understand the history of it. We, we, we're all consuming daily news. How many people got COVID, died from COVID, recovered from COVID? We've, we, we need to do a lot more deeper and more introspective reading and, uh, and thinking. And um, this is timeless because Justice Malala, who's arrived back in America to be with his family, has um, has got to go for a, a, a COVID test. So, Justice, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Toby. Thanks so much, Ivor. It's been a pleasure, and it's uh, it's uh, lovely to to talk about these things. Uh, Toby, before I go, can I just say, um, for me, the past three months, and I know that you, you know we you started off wanting to touch on the moment that we're in. Um, I think we need to also contextualize the fact that this pandemic has affected the entire world, the, the issues that we battle with about easing, uh, the opening up, easing back into a normal, if you will, um, country, are not just us. The, the UK is battling with these issues. Um, I'm in LA now and I was feeling, I was sitting at the restaurant yesterday with a friend of mine 
um, socially distanced. We bought uh, drinks and and they we went and picked them up. No one touched them. We didn't touch anyone. We didn't get close to anyone. Um, you know that restaurant was being was being closed because there is a surge in LA County um, of of COVID nineteen cases. Uh, so what we're seeing in South Africa, a lot of what we go through, uh, particularly people like you and and me in the media, is this sense of, oh my word, is the end of the world? South Africa is going to collapse because there's a surge in Gauteng and it's going to, you know, it's going to pass the Western Cape as the epicenter and so forth. People, leaders, um, governors all over the world are dealing with exactly these issues. And, and I think we need some context about the fact that, you know, at, at the beginning when we were in five, in the first five week lockdown and just open up the country, open up the country. And, and and now we're sitting here with a situation and it's shut down the country, shut down the country. And I think I think we need to step back a little bit and say it's hard, it's difficult, it's complex, it's very, very complex and it's uncharted. And that we need to remember that all the time because otherwise we veer from absolute pessimism to to giddy optimism and and maybe the truth is not in those extremes you know it's it's that we have to stay the course and and find a way through for our, for our people for for the economy for the sake of the sanity and unity of the country but we're not alone in this you know we uh, the New Zealanders might be doing a fantastic job. The Americans are doing a terrible job. The UK is terrible. Uh, the Tanzanians have lost the plot. The Zimbabweans are not in play, whatever. But we are not alone in this. And sometimes we do behave as if South Africa is the only place that has COVID-19. Yeah, it seems that we've done uh, the show. Is the, the, the show has quite spontaneously, organically uh, moved in in. in in ways that I think are completely appropriate for the kind of discussion we should be having. We, should, we started off with a very particular, we moved to the South Africa general, and then just as you brought in the international. So I think that that's a, that's a lovely trajectory for a show. And I think that should be the general, uh, the general movement of all, of all these shows from the particular to the South African to the, to the opening up to the world. So that's a lovely, well put. Well, uh, Ivor and Justice, uh, thank you very much for this incredibly fascinating conversation and I think it's the kind of conversations that we need to have more of and Justice hopefully we'll have you back on the show soon soon uh, and hopefully that uh, COVID test of yours will be negative. Super thanks so much guys. Ciao. Thank you for listening to this very strident debate about the deeper issues affecting South African politics and government. Thank you for listening to this podcast Filling the Gap. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this on social media. Our username is at T2S2Africa. And our hashtag is hash filling the gap with two Ps. This podcast is a production of the Government and Public Policy Foundation and Stuff Media. It is presented by Dr. Ivor Chipkin. And I am your host, Toby Shapshak. Our audio geniuses are Hans Baumgarten and Shane Berry, who created our original theme song. Nothing would happen without Sally Hudson, our business manager. You can email us on gap, G-A-P-P, at t2s2.africa. And our websites are www.gapp-tt.org and t2s2africa. Thank you.